All right, folks, welcome back to the podcast, One Man and One Tree in a Hill. My name is Jared Waters, and I would like to present to you part two of our conversation with Miss B. Ladies and gentlemen, last time we left off, she was telling us what's it like dating inside her community, what's it like coming up in the community, how she grew up. And now we're going to give you part two of the Miss B story. All right, folks, stay tuned. Health history, mental history, family history. Do they pray? What's their family's socioeconomic status? What's their religious status? Do they want kids? What kind of schools do they want to go to? And even during the dating process, it's things as trivial as like, um, so what role do you want to play? Am I working and supporting while you're staying at home with the kids? How many kids do you want to have? Do you want to have a TV in the house? Like, I feel like all of the issues that crop up in marriage, a lot of them are addressed in this process of dating, which kind of makes the transition easier. Well, what's your deal breaker? Um, What's the deal breaker that you wouldn't have? Would you date outside of your race or what would you? What's your ideal man for your mom? What's your mom's ideal man? What's your ideal man? My mm. parents would love for me to marry a rabbi. <laughs> does it matter what color the rabbi is or it doesn't matter? Just whatever the rabbi is. It, unfortunately, it does. I hate verbalizing this, but there is a very big stigma with marrying outside of the community. So, like, a Spartic person is really expected to marry a Spartic person. You can't Ashkenaz, marry Ashkenazi people, I've had Ashkenaz people say to me, we won't date you because you're Spartic. Um, Yeah. I've had people say that to me. Um, I've had, and I'm, I'm certain that, you know, even in the Spartic community, like Syrians will tend to only marry Syrians. Um, They won't want to marry Moroccans because they view us as inferior. Um, I've also had so many stereotypes about being Moroccan. I've had people tell me, like I've gone on dates where the guys were like, so you're Moroccan. Oh, so I got to be careful because you have a temper. (laughs) Um, or oh so you're Moroccan so does your dad beat you like these are things that people have said to me outright and I just I just laugh about it I'm like oh yeah last week he broke my arm the week before it was my leg (laughs) they are great dancers I was in Marrakesh and I danced my innards off they are the good dancers (laughs) like what can you do you can either laugh about it and joke about it or you can cry and tear your hair out well what about like an Ethiopian is that like out of your question your dad would like how would your dad view if you dated Ethiopian would he be upset if it was an Ethiopian rabbi I think my my dad would be a lot more open minded I think my parents would struggle a bit in the beginning but they would become a little more open minded because A I'm almost I'm 28 and that's considered like super scandalous it's like oh my god she's approaching spinsterhood like marry someone anyway he's some pretty babies <laughs> um, um, I think honestly to answer your question I think the biggest no no like the biggest sin would be marrying someone who's not Jewish um, if, if you had to like list the sins in order of how egregious they are the worst thing you could do to an orthodox or a Hasidic parent is marry someone who's not Jewish and then it would turn into marry someone who's not religious. No, would you I'm be sorry, disassociated if you married someone outside of your religion? Would I be what? Would you be disassociated or would you just be frowned upon if you married, say, someone that was Hindi? So yeah, again, it depends really on a family by family basis. I have a friend who's Orthodox um, and she was dating someone who is Italian Catholic. So her parents' reaction was to sit Shiva, which is the, the Hebrew commandment for mourning. Basically, when someone dies in the religious community, there's um, there's like laws and structure in place. You sit Shiva for seven days, you tear your clothes, you sit on the floor, um, and you mourn their loss. And you have people that knew the person come and visit you and comfort you and talk about um, like what a great person they were. And there are prayers that are said, you're not supposed to shower or wash your body with hot water for a few days. You're not supposed to listen to music. 
for a few days. You're not supposed to do pleasurable things. It's a period of mourning. Um, so this girl who was dating this Italian Catholic guy, her parents literally sat Shiva for her. Like they tore their clothes as if she had passed on and they mourned her as if she had passed on. Um, and they, they wouldn't speak to her. For how long? And then she broke up with him and she came back and they like welcomed her back. But then on the other hand, I know another girl who's Hasidish. Um, and she actually met someone who was Pakistani, um, not Jewish Pakistani. And her dad was like, I am not supporting this. I am not paying for a wedding. I am not giving you any money, but you are still my daughter. And so we will like leave Brooklyn and like take a train to Manhattan to meet her and her like boyfriend in a bar in like the West village somewhere where nobody from their community will know them or see them. (laughs) Um, and they'll, they'll hug her and kiss her and say that she loves her. And they'll then go home to synagogue and pray that like the boyfriend disappears. (laughs) Um, but they're not cutting her off. And they tell the other kids in the family, the younger kids, you know, like, um, you know, she's, she's not doing a, a mitzvah. Like she's not with someone who's Jewish and hopefully God Hashem will, will like help her and we have to pray for her that she heals and that she you know comes back to her senses but yeah there's like wide extremes of reactions you could have one family like sit and mourn as if you died you could have one family say we love you we don't condone this it really hurts us we're gonna pray that he like moves to africa or whatever (laughs) but we'll visit you in some like hole in the wall bar where no one will see us i don't personally know anyone who's dating out of the tribe that their parents welcome that person in their home and say come for a shabbat meal but I'm certain that they exist. It, again, it's such a like depends on the family, depends on the case by case basis. My so, parents personally, I don't know how they'd react. They would not be happy. They would cry. They would be in a lot of pain. But you're the favorite. Um, but God is is more. Like, have you ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? I have. He's a nice person. He is. Tovia, one of the most powerful scenes is how Tovia at the end has to decide between his faith to his God and his love for his daughter, who marries a Russian, like a non-Jew, a Gentile. And her daughter is madly in love with him. And he's a good man. He's a kind man. He's he's gracious. Um, I forgot his name. The blonde guy. The Russian dude that she basically falls in love with and marries. Right? So there's a very powerful scene at the end where she comes up to him. As the family, the Jewish family is exiled. They were forced to leave Russia, right? Right. So Tufia is standing there with his whole family and his little wheelbarrow of belongings and he's forced to leave his country because of the non-jews and he was abused his entire life by the non-jews and his daughter is standing right behind him with a non-jew saying papa papa i love you and he turns around and he says no i cannot accept this right and then she backs up and the scream zooms in on his face and he says I cannot abandon my daughter whom I love so much and I gave my life and sweat to. But if I embrace her husband, I am abandoning the God that I gave my life to my whole life. I followed his path. So it's a really, really tough conflict. It's like, do you turn your back on that which you know your entire life, the God, the laws, the songs, the prayers, the traditions for 50, 60 years by accepting this person who also really represents the world that hates you, right? That exiles you, that persecutes you. Do you embrace that? Or do you say she'll come to her senses, she'll leave him, she doesn't know what she's doing, he hates her anyway, he's anti-Semitic probably at the bottom of his heart, 
Like, what, what do you do in such an instance? I, I, I can understand parents who face this conflict. It's a really painful one. I personally, if my child were to fall in love with someone who's not Jewish, I know for a fact I would welcome them into my home. I would not, but it's, it's not a religious thing. It's because I want my child to feel like mommy loves me. I could commit a really bad crime. Mommy loves me. Do you feel loved by your parents? I do, but I also feel like I have to hide parts of myself from them. And look, like many of us do that. Many of us hide parts of ourselves from our parents. Right. My mother doesn't know who I totally am either. Yeah. Like, I I want my child to feel like I can be gay and mommy loves me. I can be a thief, mommy loves me. Like, I want my child to feel like I will love them completely and irrevocably no matter what they do or who they are. And additionally, honestly, I've taught for 10 years. I've had so many experiences with parents. I've seen parents turn away their kids. And guess what? Those kids don't come back. They find love elsewhere. It's like, if you're not going to love me, you're not going to welcome me. No problem. There's other people that will. And if I am telling my child, your loved one is not welcome in my house, they're not, there's no guarantee they'll come back. Right. They, you know, so I want them to feel like I can bring my loved one into my home and show them love and hopefully maybe bring them closer to Judaism. Are you the only, are you the only one that feels that way? Or do your other siblings feel that way? I don't think my siblings feel this way because I think my siblings follow a very traditional, like, ascribed... So you're the only outcast in the family. Like, I honestly, some of my siblings, if they're hearing me having this conversation, I could could hear them say, like, oh my gosh, Sarah, you would let a non-Jew, like, marry your kid? Like, what? (laughs) Like, it would be a reaction of shock more so. It would be one of, like, I can't believe my sister is talking this way, (laughs) which is why I really hope that none of my siblings ever hear this podcast. I think that I think that it's a you can, I think about like think about how many people growing up in this growing up just like you probably felt just like you and probably feel these feel these things but probably don't know it's okay to say this you know like right. people just think well, like Jewish people are one way but it's like this big sea of people from different different pyramids different <laughs> forms of the pyramids different languages different everything else and your story is completely different because we got, we say, let's, let's just backtrack. We got a person who's grown up, you know, as like a second parent, you put, let's say you grew up with like weights on you a little bit, you know, weights that you didn't necessarily have to put on you, but you put it on because you didn't want someone else to hold these weights, you know? Yeah. So that's a, that's tough. That makes you strong. Of course, you're going to be strong because you're carrying weight that you're not supposed to carry, but your brothers and sisters and parents probably don't even know this about you. When they probably listen to this, they'll probably be like, wow, how strong is my sister? How strong or, is this person like, in my house? Holy shit, my sister is such a heretic. <laughs> no, you gotta think. You gotta think about. It. Sometimes when you don't understand, when you don't know a person, once you, like, that's why we start from the beginning. We start from the beginning. We go to the middle. We go like gradually how we get inside a person's yeah. life, how that person is. So, yeah. would you say you don't believe in unequally yokedness? That's what the Bible says. In what? Unequally yoked. Ever heard of that unequally yoked? It's like when people are from two different cultures and they blend two different religions and blend them together. I dated this Muslim one time, this Muslim girl, when I was in when I was in the Netherlands, and it was cool, beautiful. She is from Morocco as well. Wow. Trust me, I took her to prom. Everyone, she was way older than me too. I think I was like sixteen and she was like twenty two. But I was like, don't worry, nobody can tell. And. uh... <laughs> <laughs> Oh gosh. <laughs> yeah. I think I told her I was like I said everybody goes to prom it's an American thing. So she went. Maybe she was twenty one. I don't know. I know she was older than me. 
But we enjoyed ourselves. We had a good time. The only problem was like when we talked about kids. She's like, I want my kids to be Muslim, and I was like, I no, I don't. No, like if we had never had kids. You know, sometimes you think, but at the same time, I'm just like, I don't know if I could do unequally yokeness because when you when it goes to kids, now like ten years yeah. ago, so of course, but when you talk I, about kids, it's hard raising kids as two religions. It's, I've had many opportunities, if you would, like I've had interesting conversations and opportunities to have relationships with males who were not necessarily Jewish. Um, there was one person in particular. Uh, a very kind, intelligent person um, who I genuinely liked. But I always stopped myself from letting that relationship grow because I know deep down that I want a Jewish home. I want Shabbat meals. I want the beauty of the holidays of Purim and Hanukkah and Pesach. Like, there's a world of rich tradition and beautiful tradition, and I want that for myself and my children, and I'm hoping that my husband does too. Um but if my child were to come home with someone who's, you know, Catholic or Muslim and say, I really love this person, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be happy, but I wouldn't write them off. My instinct would not be, be gone. Right. <laughs> You're not a member of the tribe. How dare you? My instinct would be, okay, what is it about this person that makes you love them? Why mm. do you love them? Show me who that person is. And I would trust my child that my child would hopefully be raised well enough to only be drawn to someone who's a good, a good essence, like a humane, kind, compassionate person. And I think that at the end of the day, what makes me different than a lot of my community is that a lot of people will put God first and then humanity second. I don't know how I developed this philosophy, but I believe that God created humans. And so humans all have a piece of God. This is a Jewish belief. We have a neshama. God took a piece of him and breathed it into us, and that is our soul. We're all gods. We're all God, essentially. We're all... So why would you look at a person, and the first thing you look at is how many of God's laws do you keep instead of how godly of a person are you? Mm. So I tend to first look at a person. How godly are you? What are your good traits, your attributes? How have you bettered the world? How have you bettered yourself? Then I look at, okay, what does your skirt cover your knees? Do you eat pork? Do you like it just seems lesser important than what kind of person are you? And I find that unfortunately many people who are religious, and this extends itself to Muslim, Catholic, you know, Hindu, even they tend to look at first like, oh, so do you keep the Sabbath? Do you pray in mosque? Do you cover your hair with a hijab or with a skull cap? Like they don't look at, oh, so do you do you give charity? Are you judgmental? Are you kind? Are you abusive? Like what kind of person are you? So I would really, really like for my children to have a Jewish home, too. I would like for them to keep the traditions alive. But if, you know, one of them were to come home with someone who's not necessarily religious or observant or Jewish, I wouldn't immediately kick them out and say, be gone. I would say, okay, what makes this person so lovable to you? And then I would maybe try to show that person the beauty of Judaism. Come to a Shabbat meal. Come see how beautiful Shabbat dinner is. How do you feel about Shabbat? How do you feel about Judaism? Yeah, I no? say you're not open until you try it. I've been to a mosque before. I've been when I was in Egypt. And I love it. The mosques are nice. I've been to a mosque. I've been to Shabbat. I've welcomed. I've said I've embraced anything. When I do have kids, that I just want to be in, to feel like you could talk to me about anything. I don't want to be yeah. judgmental and just be like, look, man, I want. I don't want to be your bro, but I want to be your dad. <laughs> you're not going to call me by my first name, but I want to be the point where you could talk to me and your mom about anything. Anything. And we could, exactly. should be able to talk about it. 
it's interesting that you mentioned i got what you mean about the yoke of of togetherness i just looked it up um there's a famous couple in israel you know the show fauda no i don't okay so it's a famous show about the palestinian israeli conflict it talks about how this secret undercover group um of israeli soldiers will sometimes penetrate areas like gaza or the west bank and they'll go in undercover dressed as muslim palestinians um and they'll try to you know like take out terrorists or prevent terrorist attacks from happening but what makes the show so interesting is that it also shows the perspective of the terrorists and how they sometimes suffer at the hands of the israeli military and it just it, it's like they try to portray an accurate balanced um tale of what both of the conflicts both sides face so anyway there's a famous actor um on this show and his name is i think tahi halevi and he's basically jewish this israeli man jewish his whole life um and he married a muslim palestinian woman oh wow is this show on hulu yeah. uh yeah you can find it on netflix for free um so there's an actor yeah his name is tahi halevi and this is like a religious he kept shabbat he kept kosher man who was an actor and he acted um on this show fauda his role was a, a soldier in the idf who would go undercover into gaza to take out terrorists and he met this arab woman her name is lucy aharish she's an arab israeli news anchor a television reporter who's very famous um and she's the first muslim arab news presenter on mainstream hebrew language israeli television so she was the first woman who would start saying like um you know tayeb and like hello she would greet her um audience members in arabic and hebrew um and so she met with tahi halevi they met and they fell deeply in love and they got married and this was so controversial oh my god like all of israeli media television everybody was getting involved and commenting on their wedding even the ministers of knesset like where in the world do you have a marriage where like the politicians will get involved and comment on the marriage um so you have knesset members that are standing up in knesset and talking about the wedding and the marriage and there are people that are fiercely opposed how could this religious jew marry this palestinian you have like both jews and palestinians that are just appalled and angry and furious and then you have people that are in full support and you have people that are like you know what they really love each other and they're learning about each other's cultures and they right. both speak arabic and they both speak hebrew like and i just remember my dad was commenting and he was like i don't know how they're doing this like how are they raising their kids are they going to go to mosque or are they going to go to synagogue like they're, they're basically raising their kids with two levels of hate because these kids are going to have a lot of palestinians hating them and a lot of jews hating them and so like i remember just thinking to myself you know what they're such a cute couple <laughs> they really love each other like the way they talk about each other and the one interview that they granted the public good for them for for fighting this and for making it work and however they decide to raise their kids that's for them to figure out that's for Sometimes them to figure out and I'm, it's when and like uh, i i have faith in them that they're they're going to raise their kids with enough love and enough knowledge to combat it Sometimes it's when an outside party looks in and makes you think about stuff like i remember being in the netherlands being like an american and then when the iraq war was huge like I never saw the Iraqi side until this Canadian teacher came up and gave me a tape and it was a documentary about all the Iraqis when it happened. And they're just like, "What? Are, why are y'all here? Like, look, it's another day. We have nothing. And just like getting that perspective, like being neutral, sometimes you, ha- you wear this armor of where you're from. And with this armor, you don't, you're not, 
you're not acceptable, you're not cognizant of like rejecting someone's ideology, views, or everything else. So like I have tons of Palestinian friends and I love hearing their side of the fence and I love hearing the Israeli side of the fence. And when I went to Bethlehem, like some of the Israelis couldn't go with me. I went by myself and getting their perspective and everything else. And I was like, I don't I don't know how to I don't I'm not I don't know how to solve it. You gotta leave it up to God. God can solve it. I don't know what to say, you know? But I know that right I know that people it's hard to just do. I just don't want people to die. I just want people to live in harmony. You know, I want both sides to live in harmony. But they both sides are just like we don't know how that can happen. Yeah. I'm like, there's when it does much... happen, they said the world to end. So there's too much. I feel like misconception and miseducation, misinformation, and it leads to animosity and hate. There are people that were raised to legitimately hate Jews, and honestly, I've seen. And there's people raised society. to legitimately hate people from Palestine as well. Right, and there are people that are legitimately raised to hate Arabs, and yes. it's it's sad because uh, get to know them, get to know these people. Like I was raised my whole life. It's like there's us and 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 like don't you know don't don't talk to like people from outside. They don't like Jews, and they're gonna think the worst of you. And honestly, you don't break out of that until you. Well, for me at least, like I went to Brooklyn College, and that was the first time that I was sitting in a classroom with males. The first time I was sitting in a classroom with non-Jews, the first time I was sitting in a classroom with people who were Muslim, first time I was sitting in a classroom with people who were gay or part of the LGBTQ community. And it was so surreal and weird and odd. And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, uh, how do I act? How do these people think of me? What do they think of me? What do I think of them? And my, it was interesting because it was a class called culture and diversity, part of the requirements for a master's in education. And the professor stands up and says, okay, so we're each doing projects. Who wants to do a project that talks about, um, you know, Hispanic, Hispanic kids in the community? Who wants to do a project talking about LGBTQ? And then she said, who wants to do the project, the PowerPoint presentation on Islamophobia? And all of a sudden I hear a voice going, me. And then a second later I'm like, that was my voice. <laughs> what? <laughs> I, Before I even consciously, like, reconciled that I was interested in taking an uncomfortable step and learning about another perspective, my voice just popped out. Like, I want to do it. I want to give the presentation on Islamophobia. And I'm an Orthodox Jew from an Orthodox community that loves Israel. I have family that serves in the IDF that were in terrorist attacks that were shot at, stabbed by Muslims. And I want to do the presentation on Islamophobia. Because I know that I'm going to end up teaching Muslim students. I know that I know nothing about Muslims except for that which I've been exposed to, which is Muslims bad, Muslims terror, Muslims 9-11, Muslims bombings and stabbings in Israel. I don't know anyone who's not portrayed as a fanatic or a terrorist, and I don't like that. And so I ended up doing it. I ended up reaching out to a bunch of people in my class that did wear hijabs and that were Muslim, and I asked them questions that were like, what's your favorite Muslim food? Like, what's, what's your favorite, like, traditional Mideastern food? What's your favorite Muslim prayer? What's the origin of your name? And I learned so much from them. And they started asking me questions about Judaism. And it was fascinating. It was like, I did not know this about you. Hey, we both love hummus. Hey, we both hate people that turn hummus into like chocolate flavored hummus. Like, why are you destroying the dish? Like <laughs> Don't do that. Distant cousins. Like, you guys are like cousins. Hey, we both have parents that are just obsessing over our meeting someone in synagogue and mosque and marrying them. We both are considered like spinsters because we're 26 and not married yet 
we both have to cover our hair and don't want like I mean well one of them wanted to I didn't want to but um it's just it's all about like reaching beyond and meeting people that are not from your community and getting to know them and I'm gonna make this political for a second I just feel like everything that's going on right now with the Black Lives Matter movement and with um just everything in general the political climate people are so scared I am seeing Orthodox Jewish people that are terrified to reach out and talk to people from the black community. And equally so, I'm seeing people from the black community that are like, I don't, like, what am I supposed to talk about with Jewish people? Like, what am I, you know, they're all, like, they control the rent. And I'm like, you know, like, maybe five landlords that were not good people that were Jewish? So based on that, every single Jewish person now is, like, is a is a thieving, nasty person? I mean, I would... I've had, I've had... I would interject and say that it's more, if you're talking about today's climate, I think today is more, especially in New York. New York is a yeah. really segregated city. You know, down, people think about the South and think about how racist the South is because like, everyone in the South lives amongst each other. So right. if you have a problem, someone's going to talk to somebody like that. Like when I... Like when I'm talking to Jewish people and I'm like, you guys are the chosen people. Like, why do you say that? I was like, that's what I was read. You guys are the chosen people. What? That's what's in my Bible. But like being around New York, it's just like, all right, Jewish people over here. And the, they kind of divide to the point where yeah. people can't cross connect, you know? And I think that yeah. especially, shoot, like all my good friends are all Muslims. All of them are like the best people in the world I've met are Muslims. And when you think about it, like that show Rami is like really good because it made you understand like Saudi Arabia and like Egypt of how... How, like, they import strawberries to America. Yeah. I had no idea about that the whole time. It's crazy. He's like, Osama bin Laden is, like, eating strawberries. I'm like, why is Osama bin Laden eating strawberries? And it's, like, <laughs> it's, it's very awkward, strange about like that. But I remember being young and just the images of just, like, terrorism. Like, why do they always have to come from Yemen? Why do they have to come from these Middle right. Eastern com- com- countries? Why can't right. they come from our own country? You know? Right. So it's just, like... I think New Yorkers are just kind of ignorant. Yeah, like I think New Yorkers are just kind of just ignorant to, ignorant to like culture. It's so ironic because we're considered like the melting pot. We're considered the center of diversity. I was trying. I had an idea. I wanted to host a Shabbat meal, and I wanted to invite people from the African American community. I want to show you guys what is Shabbat, and I got like. I found no one who was interested, and I was like, I was telling a friend of mine in Israel about this, and she's like. Uh, ma, I don't understand. Uh, New York, everybody wants to learn about everybody, and I'm like, no, 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 nobody wants to learn about nobody. <laughs> Everybody's stuck in their own like, like their own neighborhood, their own community. It's like, I, I don't know. I wish people would just. Try Sometimes to get I to think know it might be the older generation. Like a person at my school, she is Jewish, and she's like maybe 60, 60 something, and she, the whole time she kept saying, "I don't understand why Black Lives Matter. I don't understand. I grew up rough. I did everything else." And I was explaining to her, I was saying that, I said, I understand what you're trying to say. I said, but what we're trying to say is, she goes, I'm Jewish. We were persecuted against, we did this, we did this. There's a whole group of people. And I was like, you got to understand, there were black people who were soldiers who went to Germany to fight off, right. to fight for you. And then when they got back home, they couldn't get houses, they couldn't get clothes, they didn't get proper right. treatment. And she kind of like understood a little bit. And I was like, you got to think about it. I was like, there's a group of people. I was like, even in Israel, you could be treated bad as a Yemenite person, but when you come to America, you are not black, so you're good. That's such a beautiful response. If you're I love not that you black, said that to yeah, If you're not black, people don't care. It's like the whole thing is to, if you think about every subgroup of people, it's just like, we are not black. Whatever we are, we're not black. 
Right. I'm this, but not black. So it's like in every country, it's just like the lowest people are like the darkest people. So I was like, and it sucks. It it's sucks. So I mean, it sucks. I gotta ask God, what's up with that, man? Like, what is what is going on with that? But at the same time, I had to talk to myself about numbness. Like, like we had do to. You, like, do you find that you have to become numb? Like you make yourself. We were talking earlier about how sometimes, like a person like myself, will try to not like not acknowledge my own pain because I'm trying to just move on and help other people with theirs do you find that you ever have to make yourself numb to the pain i think it's i think it's growing i i I say it's numbness because it's been going on so long that you should not be numb to what's going on like i remember walking home in north carolina having kids like have a guy like pull a gun out of his car and just wave it at me and like what yeah i was just walking home he just pull he stops his car on the drop top he pulls out this gun and just, That's horrible. and then he puts it away and he sees me like, like freak out a little bit, but I know oh like God. on certain situations, like I should not, I should not freak out. I should just walk like it's not happening. So I just walked off and they drove off, but it's just like growing up in the South. It's just like my father told me he would always like be super strict. And like when he yelled at me, even when I didn't do anything wrong, he's like, always say yes, sir. Whenever you're wrong, say yes, sir. Don't argue. Don't do anything else. And I never understood. And he's just like, when a police officer comes and he asks you that question, you better not give them a different response and everything else. I can say there's wow. probably been five times where I've talked myself out of a ticket because they were shocked how respectful I was. Like they came wow. up, holster already, holster already, and as soon as they got to the car, I had my license, I had everything in the dashboard, my hands on the clock, hats off, and he looks in the car and goes, is everything all right? I said, yeah, my, my dash, everything's on the dashboard. If you need anything, and he's like, what, 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 what? And I was like, yeah, what, wow. whatever you need. And I'm like talking, I, just, I was stopped in New York. And he goes, really? And I was like, yeah, I got Florida tags. I'm not even from here. I'm just actually visiting. I don't even know. I don't know what I did. And he's like, you know, just take a take a warning. Just, you know what? That's a warning. This is very refreshing to do that. Wow. But like down south, we know you can be killed by a cop. There's plenty of times where like 8 o'clock in the morning, I'm driving a van. And I literally got back from Cuba the next day. 17 cop cars pulled me over. They say there's a broken tail light, and I don't. It's my dad's van. I don't know whose van it is, and they pull me over, and the same thing, hat off, everything else, and the cop just comes up. You know, they have their hands on their holster and stuff, and they're wondering like, "Well, oh, we just need to run your license real fast." And they realize nothing's on my license, everything else, and they they send this black cop, and he's all like, "We just want you to talk to you about this murder that happened in downtown Tampa last night." He goes, "You know," oh this, and I had to tell him, I was like, "This is gonna sound crazy." This is going to sound really wild, but I was in Havana, Cuba last night. <laughs> oh, my God. And the look in his eyes just looked at me, and we kind of stared at each other. And I was like, I got pictures on my phone. I can tell you, I was literally in Cuba last night. So they oh, go no. back and talk to the guy, and they're talking. I'm like, this kid was in Cuba last night. Like, literally was in Cuba. <laughs> but I was like... I, sometimes I thank God that I'm in this situation and not my dad or anybody else. Imagine a dude who wasn't as calm and right, wasn't as like that. Like, you know, I've God seen forbid, it. Right. There's plenty of times I've seen New York cops just do disrespectful stuff. I'm on a train, this lady, I, I've moved out the way so she can get on, and she's like, go ahead. And I was like, no, nah, it's okay. She goes, go ahead. I say, go ahead. And she's like, holds her gun and like walks up close to me. Then I walk like I can get on the train and I let it go off. And I was like, I'm not going to get on the train with you. I don't. Think about how many police officers had a bad day and they're on the job right now. Like, I've seen it all the time. I had a college roommate who I know is probably a racist. I know as soon as he got drunk, he dropped the N-word. And he's a police officer patrolling the streets. Oh, so you to live with him? Yeah, but my thing was at the time, I was like, I know I have to show him that all black people are not bad. 
So sometimes I find myself saying, like, I need to show this guy that the only... Because most of just culture differences. I used to walk around with this big duffel black bag because I didn't like going... I just go to the gym. He goes, do you have drugs in your bag? I was like, dude, this... I was like, these are groceries in here. It's like, why do you put groceries in the bag? I was like, so I don't have to take two trips to my car. <laughs> oh, that's a smart move. But he didn't know. You know, he didn't know. know. Like, someone came to my house and, like, poured tobacco in the trash can. He, like, flipped out. Get this weed out of my house. I was like, first of all, that's tobacco. Second of all, you had parties in my house where people were smoking weed. I never said anything. And it was mm-hmm. just that fact. Like, as soon as he got drunk, it was just like, he was like, why don't you play with the nigger dog? And I'm like, what the freak did you say to me? Excuse me? Yeah, this is North Carolina. So it's just like me, like, you know, letting them know, like, hey, I don't. But, but it was the fact that I had another white roommate who was an ally who would just be all like, sometimes in my room, they didn't know I was there. He'd be like, I don't think Jared would like if you talked like that. He goes, well, Jared's not here. He goes, still, that's not appropriate. So sometimes it's like, you have to be the change for people to do that. Because I think all of the protests are happening is because kids grew up with people from different races. And it's just like, this is wrong. One of my friends, Zubi, she's like from, she's from Bangladesh. And she's doing more for like black lives and shoot than I can. I was like, I can't be out on all these marches all the time. But it's just all these people growing up. There's like kids growing up who realize like my kindergarten teacher's black and he was nice. You know, like, you could stop it at, like, the bottom level. I had a kid one time when I was teaching in Florida. She goes, all black people are just bad people. And I was like, I was like, why are you teaching? She's five. Uh, And I was asking her, I was just asking her, I was like, why do you think that? She goes, what my dad says, like, all black people are bad. And I was like, well, what do you tell your dad? She goes, I tell him, well, Mr. Waters is nice. He's not, he's black and he's nice. (sighs) And he goes, I was like, what does your dad say? He goes, well, he's different. And she goes, I told him it's not nice to say all black people are bad. <laughs> I love how a five-year-old is schooling a parent. But that's what's happening now. It's the kids that that's grew up with black people. It's kids. so sad. It's the kids. It's the young generation. Because older people like us are like numb. Like I would say the older generation like are numb. You know, George Floyd happened. It's like, yeah, I've seen this before. The only right. difference is that someone saw it on tape and you hear him cry out. There's another girl being kissed. Plenty of people killed. And sometimes yeah. you wonder about like why you wonder why sometimes like i had to tell a co-worker she was just like jared you're crazy i was like you don't think black people have to assimilate to cultures to be nice and to laugh and to joke to disarm that you might be scared of me i was like because if you all saw me in the street you wouldn't know this bearded dude you wouldn't know what to think of me and she's like oh wow i didn't think about it like that i was like yeah think about all the people you work with no one's like this they're probably just caricatures of themselves because they can't be who they really are so I wonder, you know, sometimes it, 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 it guts like that, but sometimes, like, when you're a comedian, it's like people just want to be happy. They don't want to talk about, like, what's really going on. Yeah. Like, they don't want to hear and that. sometimes you get a lot of pushback, and you risk your career, you risk your salary when you do find a way to insert comedy. And honestly, I feel like comedy is the best way to deliver critique because it's, it's, it's a way that gets people to laugh at themselves. If you make a joke about someone being a racist, they can laugh, and at the same time acknowledge, like, oh, but he's right. It's wrong. If you yell at someone, you racist, you go burn your house on fire, right? They're never going to talk to you again. And they'll just feel angry and they'll feel justified in their racism. That's why I feel like comedy is such a powerful tool for helping social change. But you do risk a lot of flack. You risk a lot of flack. And it's a lot of, like, when I moved to New York, it's like a lot of comedians are like, white people, white people, white people are just, like, saying, like, white privilege, everything else. I was like, well, good luck going down south where there's proud white people. You think they're going to sit there and listen to this the whole time? And, you know, say what you want about, like, Donald Trump or whatever. 
But like his supporters are out there and there's supporters who don't say anything that are like quiet that probably don't have the same ideologies and views, but they're just Republicans. Yeah. You know, and they need to be treated like people. Just because someone thinks different of you politically doesn't mean that they're the worst scum of the earth. So it's just like it's to the point now in society where it's like, if you're not this, you're this. If you're not this, you're this. I was like, what happened to the people who are just neutral? This is something I agree with. I posted um, I posted a tribute to David Dorn. He was a black cop who was, I was pretty killed much... killed in St. Louis. Yeah, he was killed. Um, he was standing in front of a, a pawn shop, shop protecting it. It was a black business that he was protecting, and a looter came up and shot him, and then it was live-streamed on Facebook. And I just felt horrible because the poor man, think about it, he was 77. He was a father. He was a grandfather. Um, he was literally retired he just stepped in to help protect that shop and boom bullet to the brain and he's dead and i i felt awful and i posted a tribute saying you know i think this man died a hero he deserves to be acknowledged for spending his whole life helping his community helping better the world and and the person that shot him got caught and i hope that you know like the person who killed him learns a lesson and the justice is served and all of a sudden i get about 20 30 messages how dare you Cops are, like, all cops are bad, all cops deserve to die, and, like, why are you only commenting on this person and not on this person, and and you're you're fake and you're racist, and why are you commenting on this if you're not from this community, and blah, blah, blah. I was like, guys, relax. I posted a tribute to a person who died because I thought that he died a hero and he's a good person and his memory should be preserved in some way. It doesn't mean that I am... Like, for this candidate, against this candidate, for this community, against this community. It, it just means that I respect a man who is killed. It's just a lot like, of information. It's a lot of information. It's just a lot of information. And sometimes when you're silent on a certain issue and you're not silent on the other issue, people just gravitate to think where you are. I was like, back in the right. day, voting used to be very private. Like, no one knew where you voted. No one knew right. what side you are on. And that my boy's from St. Louis. All those guys from St. Louis. And he told me, like, it was sad. Like, a guy was a member in the community in the community feels for him and everything else but like when people when people try to do this thing where they're just like these there's a meme where like these are protesters these are looters these are pro i was like you tell me martin luther king didn't want to have tennis shoes on you know what i mean like you don't think he wanted to you don't think he was trying to run away when those dogs got sicked on him and stuff like that but it's it's just things are going to get crazy you know and a lot of people who are rioting aren't even from the protesters it's just random people who just wanted to break in the gucci store yeah there's a lot of antifa out there also there's a lot antifa. of like bored teenagers that want to have extra pairs of nikes there's yeah. a lot of revolt. white people also that are breaking down into stores and looting but it's no everybody yeah <laughs> everybody's out there if it's free it doesn't matter what color your skin is there's, there's gonna be people that want free stuff it's a distraction but, it's really what is it distracting away from everything else i was at a protest and this person fell out. No one knew where the person was from. No signs, anything else. Just collapsed, right? Oui. So this guy's having a speech. And then it's just like someone realized like, oh, you're here to distract people. You know, so I think that people are, are distracting. Should the police, you know, the police do have a, a track record of like hurting people. But at the same time, there are good police officers out there. But it's just like when one spoils the whole bunch... You can go to different yeah. cities, and every city is like, no, we got the same problem here, you know? Yeah, that's true. And you got to think about it, it's just like a pandemic's happening, so people have a chance to actually focus. 
That's true. People haven't been outside. People are literally seeing one thing like, wow, this guy's killed for eight minutes. Wow, this girl was shot in her own house. This in other, her own house. In her own house. Like, how that does that a, happen? And you told her mother, you told her mother, does she have any enemies? Ugh. That's what you interviewed her mother and asked the enemies. So She I, was a paramedic. She was a hero. She spent her life helping people, which really bothered me, too. I just, I, ugh. Just imagine it's if fresh. George Floyd wasn't, you know what I mean? Just imagine if these events didn't happen, like Ahmaud Arbery, nobody would even talked about it. Like right. Ahmaud Arbery, they're about to like let it go until the ta- they released the footage thinking that the public will see, like, yeah, he deserved to die. I'm like, people are like, what? That's not right. So it's, it's, it's not, I feel bad. I'm not going to say it's like, it's like kind of a blessing in disguise because now you're seeing that people actually do care. No. And I love it because you're finally seeing, I, I posted something about, um, it was a little bit of a joke about how all these companies are all of a sudden sending out emails saying, oh, we stand for equality and, and we're da 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 da. And it's like, okay. So during Corona, I get 50 emails from every single gym, supermarket, retail that I ever bought from saying, we are here for you during the times of Corona. And now that this happened, all of a sudden I'm getting emails from the same companies. We stand, <laughs> like we stand against racism. Oh, and at first I, I poked fun of it because I was like, okay, an email is not making change exactly. Like right. you're sending out an email to appease your clients. But then I had a conversation with someone and I was thinking about it. And you know what? They've not sent emails out before. Maybe they are caving to social pressures, but they're sending out emails. They're doing something. There, There is change happening. And I teach high school, and something that I've been so proud of is that I've seen my students get out there and get active. I've had students that have been actively posting things. I've had students that have been attending protests at Barclay Center um, in the city. I've had I've had students talking about these real issues that people didn't really want to talk about before because it was uncomfortable. Right. Um, and it, it makes me happy, and it makes me proud. Also, it scares me because I'm – even though I'm like brown and Middle Eastern and we talked about how I, I could be a victim of racism in my community, I am technically considered white, right? Yeah. Um, I, I am from a middle class community. I was blessed. I, I feel like I don't know a lot about my black students. I don't know how to show them that I'm there for them. I don't know how to start a conversation about about hate and about intolerance. I, and it, it scares me as an educator. And I know a lot of white teachers that are having these conversations where they're, they're like, they're super I don't know how to talk about this because I feel like I might say the wrong thing. Whatever I say might be misinterpreted. I might hurt someone. It mm. it might get sticky. But at the same time, we're trying. We're trying to make an effort. Like I reached out to a few of my black colleagues and I asked them, I, I don't I don't know I don't know black literature. I need you to tell me. I need you to tell me. What books do I need to be reading? What books do I need to be reading with my classes? Like teach me, talk to me, tell me, because that's the only way that I'm going to learn. Um and I find that I'm grateful to God that this is happening in the Jewish community for the first time. There's conversations that are being had about this is how can we reach out to other communities? Like in Crown Heights is a, a, a very big neighborhood um, where the Jewish and the black community literally, they live like right next to each other. Um, and there was a lot of tensions earlier on in the year. There were a lot of like fist fights. There was a lot of fighting. There's a lot of, but now for the first time, I'm seeing a lot of activity on Facebook. I'm seeing a lot of, um, we're hosting a Shabbat meal. Would you like to come? Uh, we'd like to invite you to prayers at the synagogue. We'd like to have a meal, like a barbecue, where we can just sit down and talk. We can just get to know each other. Because I have all these misconceptions about you, and you have all these misconceptions about me. And I don't like you because of these misconceptions, and you don't like me because of these misconceptions. Let's tear those walls down. Let's talk to each other. 
let's what what what's the origin of your name what's your favorite holiday what's your favorite tradition right like it's all about the humanity and i wish that we could just get there and we could just like it's part of the i'm rambling now I do no you're not rambling i mean no it's not rambling i mean i think you make accurate points and it's just like a lot of teachers are scared i work with teachers they're freaking scared they don't know how to talk about this i had a lot of teachers talking to me like i had no idea that this was happening it's like really and it's and it's just like people are divided section like communities like oh this is a black problem this is this problem we're this we're that we're that until everyone realized like we're all human man what's, what's yeah. it's all human but it's ingrained in society that you know, black people are this. Black people make most of the prison prison population. Like, why is it there? Like, where did the police come from? Were there slave patrollers and stuff like that? The conversation's being had, and I think the best thing is is to not be scared to embrace. And you have to fail, you know? You have to fail. There's plenty of times. I had to learn about women. So, like, when I came from Florida, I realized that, I got, oh, freak, I'm male chauvinistic. I had no idea. I had no idea that I was like that. I had no idea that... Holding a door for somebody could be seen like that or telling boys open the door for the girls and just saying like, no, that's not a man's job. She can open the door for herself. I had to learn that coming here. I was like, I, mean, Southern, I know, but it's something like when I got here, it was just like, no, we don't, you shouldn't teach girls that. I was like, oh, sorry. I didn't know that it was yeah. like me thinking that or just like to the point when I got here, it was just like a lot of female comments were like very surprised, like. How nice I was. Like, you don't want anything out of me? I was like, no, freak. What do I want from you? No, I'm just being nice. I had to learn everything. I had to learn, like, I had a gay roommate when I was in, like, at Disney World. We learned so much about each other. Like, it's me. He was the dirtiest dude I ever lived before. I was like, man. I had How to did you adapt to that? I had the conception that everybody was clean. I was like, this is the dirtiest gay person I ever met in my life. I thought you were clean, prestigious. He's dirty, he doesn't wash himself, he does everything else. But when I was in college, I had a lot, I mean, when I was in high school, I had a lot of gay friends that were in high school, and we were just always cool. Like, I never, I never felt like they were different. I just, you know, they chose to do something different. But I think growing up in Europe made me more open to, like, this society. Like, one of my good friends, oh, yeah, good friend, he's transitioning to a woman. He's a woman now. She's a woman now, excuse me. But when he was transitioning, I had no idea. He's like, did you know I got pretty? I was like, I, I just thought you were just an average-looking man, you know? And he goes, you didn't think I was getting beautiful? I was like, you've been the average, yeah, you were pretty, but I just thought you were losing weight. And he goes, no, I got my <laughs> hips done. I was like, oh, freak, I didn't know that. But it was just like me knowing that your name is Margo now, and that's how you want to be called, so I'm going to call you Margo. Like this guy named Roy Jr. had this good point. He goes, he goes, if you have a problem calling a transgender by the name they want to, he's like, stop calling Hulk Hogan Hulk Hogan. His name is Terry. <laughs> we call wrestlers by their name. I was like, yeah. So it was just like when I was in, I was at Disney World and I was in high school. And I remember just, just, just nothing but gay dudes. And we are just all cool. One of my good friends' name is Leroy. And we're definitely polar opposite people. Like when we see us walking together, you would think he's my boyfriend. That's how pretty he is. He's like wow. amazing. But it was just to the point where I was like, What's the difference between me and him? Nothing. I got two gay dudes that go to my church, and they're actually more fun. You know what I mean? They're actually, they're, uh, they're. I, I thought they were married, but turns out they're not married. But it's curious to be like, these are still people. I can still show the love of God to anybody. So mm-hmm. what? You don't look like me. So what? You don't feel like me. It's like, what's wrong with just treating a person like a person? There's no reason to discriminate or take rights away. Like, freak it. We're all God's children. I have, I guess I have a question for you then, is that, uh, do you feel, 
like you might have a different perspective than the generations before you, like your parents or your grandparents. Do you feel like, and I'm thinking about the same thing with myself, is do you feel like you and I were both raised in, I'm, I'm assuming it was a religious upbringing, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, Christian household. Yeah. yeah, so you and I, we both come from these conservative religious upbringings, and we both have these very different views where we're more embracing of humanity and we're trying to learn and we're trying to get to know people in spite of, um, you know, how uncomfortable it might be for us or how right. different they might be. Do you think that we have a very different view than our parents or our grandparents? My grandmother, yeah, my, my grandfather, he, uh, I remember his brother, he told me a story how his brother fled North Carolina because he was making out with his wife at the time and she's very high yellow and she they thought she was a white woman. So someone came and like tried to kill him because they thought he was kissing a white woman and he beat up this wow. guy and then he had to flee and move from North Carolina to New York. So there's like a lot of waters in New York. And my grandfather, like, he, was, he wasn't he was aware, like, you could date white girls. So, like, I remember showing him my phone. like, look at that white girl right there. He goes, what is that What is that boy doing with that girl? I said, that's his girlfriend. Come on. What? Are you kidding me? I was like, no, that's his girl. Oh, come on. What? I said, look at their mixed kids. Oh, he crazy. So, so it was, just like, different. Like, my grandfather, he had to, his, I remember he used to say, in the I, so I knew he was joking, but at the same time, he would say stuff like this. He goes, if the Bible says women, women shall honor their husband, or women shall obey their husband, for this is right. He goes, if I tell my wife to shut up, she's supposed to shut up, right? He said that in front of the whole church. He said that in front of, like, Sunday school, right? I know he was saying that to start a debate, but he had all daughters and two boys. We had, like, well, he had 10 kids. We had, he had... He had two boys with my grandmother and four boys with another woman and like six girls with that. But I remember my aunts telling him, that's not right. Women does not, women are not supposed to submit them. Women are not supposed to just shut up and everything else. And I remember being young, listening to the story, realizing like, oh, this is not, I shouldn't be able to treat a woman this way. I shouldn't tell her to shut up and she's supposed to shut up. And uh, with like, I think it's because my mother probably thought I was gay growing up. She would always ask me, not in a derogatory way. She was like, if you're gay, I support you. I was like, why do you keep saying that? But I wasn't dating. I didn't I didn't tell them about my dating life. But she kept saying, like, I support you. And she was, like, very encouraging. And my dad was, like, very encouraged. Like, look, whatever happens to you, we're still going to love you. And I think the reason why I might be different is because I didn't grow up in America that long. Where were you raised? I was raised in the Netherlands and Japan. So I was raised with all these people from different worlds. Like when you're a military brat, there was like gay people in my school, they were white, they were everything else, poor people, rich people, Muslim people, everything else. So I was in the school of all these people and I would just ask questions. I would just ask all the time, like, why is this? Why is that? And like, even when I was in Israel, I would just ask questions. I was like, all right, well, you guys are doing a bar mitzvah? I'll do one. That was awesome. Everybody's like, what? I was like, Jesus did it? Shoot, I'll do it. Why not? I'll do it. Why not? Sign me up. Yeah. So, like, my parents are very, they're, I'm, we're, they're open. They're open. They're open. They're not homophobic or anything else or, like, Islamophobic. But, like, me having these conversations, like, I have a different perspective because I grew up in it. You know, my father's experienced racism a whole lot heavier than I have because he was a black dude as an officer in the military and he had to experience microaggressions and stuff like that. So the stuff he told me when I was growing up, I didn't know until I experienced it. I was like, oh, this is what he's talking about. 
oh, this is why I can't go to this certain house, or this is why this parent told me, yeah, this is nice, but stay out. Don't come to this neighborhood this type of night. I was like, I live here. Oh, well, just stay near your house at night. So it was just like, I guess I would thank him for showing us the world for me being more inclusive. And I think being more in comedy, like I meet all these different people, and when someone tells me they're hurt by something that I say, I try to let them, okay, I just want you to see why this joke is funny. And realizing I'm not going this angle. I'm trying to make light of a situation that might happen. He's like, no, I'm not trying to, I'm not going to just take, if everyone's bullying something, I'm going to try to make it lighter and try to, it's like, oh, well, think about funny like this. But it's, 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 I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard being not neutral, but being open. Yeah. You know, because listening to my, my lady talk about men and hearing women talk about men, I had no idea. No idea. I'm sitting there like, what? How did you see that? You don't see this guy being creepy? I was like, no, I thought he was being nice. Because you're not a dude. <laughs> oh, all right, freak. All right, fine. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm here to learn. I'm here to learn. Or like, someone's like, this is an all boys club. I'm like, what are you talking about? And I was like, oh, yes, maybe this is a boys club. I didn't even realize it like this. And it's and it's a charge sometimes when you're a black dude that you have to try to look out for people that look like you. And there's a lot of teachers, I call them blindside teachers, where they look at black students and they feel like they have to save them and not give them the proper teaching because they're just like, oh, he has it so hard and he has it so hard like this. Like, yeah, but you're not assessing him the right way because you're giving him a pass because you think you know what's going on in his life. You just reminded me. Um, I, I had an interesting journey. I mean... There are many Orthodox teachers. Did we break up? Can you hear no, me? No, no, good. Keep going. Okay. Yeah. There are many Orthodox teachers that teach in public school. Most of them, however, are in their 40s, 50s. A lot of them are, are older. They've been doing it for years already. It's, it's being a city worker. You know, it's a good pension, good health, uh, health benefits, salary. Um, it's You don't find a lot of very religious Jews teaching in public school that are younger, like in their 20s much. Um, and if you do, it's usually because they're OTPT speech providers. They come in, do the work, and leave. Right. Um, so when I started teaching, I got plunked in a school, which is a very high percentage of immigrants. And I was just gobsmacked. I was completely lost. Like the first time I walked into a public school building ever in my life was when I was student teaching. I walk into the building and there's people, different colors, races, countries, headgear, clothing, just coming, going. I was like, oh, what is happening? And then I see two kids openly making out in the hallway. And I'm like, rooted to the spot. Are they allowed to do that? <laughs> There's a kid who's like, boxers are like falling. And I'm like, uh, uh, young man, your, your pants are falling. And he gives me a look like, what the hell? And I'm just, it is a foreign place, Jared, foreign place. And the, the teacher who's mentoring me picks me up and I'm like, there, there are, there are children that are, are, are kissing in the hallways. She's like, oh yeah, it happens here. And I'm like, but, but, and, and, and there was a kid that jumped on top of another kid and was tackling him. Yeah. They're just goofing around. I was like the N word. They're all using the N word. They're being, what's up? Ma? And, and, and. She's like, I mean, they use it with each other. Like, it's, I was just confused and lost. And I, that, that first day, I, I remember sitting down and talking to her, and I was like, Michelle, I don't, I don't know how I could possibly be a good public school teacher. I'm, 
I'm confused and lost. I don't know any of these kids. I don't know any of their backgrounds. I, I have never been in a public school building before. This is weird. I feel like Alice in Wonderland wandering <laughs> through this. Uh, she was like, Sarah, all you got to do is talk to them. Get to know each kid based on their level. Show them you care about them. Get to care about them. And that's it. You'll be the best teacher in the world. That's all you got to do. And I was like, but, like, how do I, uh, there's kids from, like, Bangladesh and Somalia, and, like, there's the kids that only speak Chinese, and the kids, like, how am I supposed to, Sarah, just show them that you care about them, and you'll be fine. Thank God, fast forward three years, and she was right. Jared, she was so right. It's, like, the smallest things, walking up to a kid and being, like, you know, you have such a great fashion sense. She's got blue hair and, like, three nose rings and, like, you've got a really cool fashion sense, right? The kid who's, like, slam dunking his textbook in the garbage can, like, you are a great athlete. <laughs> like, finding things to talk to the kids about. And specifically with what you're saying about teachers with black kids, like, I had this one student. It was my first year teaching, and I didn't know how to handle him. His name was Jace. Tall, skinny kid, like, 6'5", black kid. He kind of came into to class, and he smelled like weed. And in my head, I'm like, I don't know how to reach this kid. Like, this kid, I, I can't, like, I, how am I supposed to connect with him? I don't, right. he doesn't come to class. When he does, he's high. And so <laughs> I thought to myself, okay, well, you know what? Your classroom stinks now like weed because it's a very heavy smell. So I went to, um, like, Target, and I bought these little, like, peppermint Febrezes that were, like, it was, like, December. So I bought this, like, peppermint stick smelling Febreze, and I put a red bow on it, and I just walked over to him. After class, and I was like, Jace, hey man, you know, um, I know that like Christmas is coming up, and I know that you celebrate, and I know that sometimes it could get a little smelly in here, if you know what I'm saying. I notice you always like open the windows, but it doesn't really get rid of the smell, so I like, I got you like a nice little Christmas gift, <laughs> and I give him this <laughs> Febreze, and in my head, I'm like, he's gonna think you're crazy, he's gonna think you're nuts, he's <laughs> never gonna talk to you again, he's probably gonna make fun of you to like everybody that he knows. You're probably going to look like an idiot. This is dumb. What are you doing? He, like, takes it. He sprays it. He's like, damn, this smells good. Thanks. <laughs> he came back to class the next day. He comes to me with another friend of his. He's like, yo, this is my friend Latrell. He wants to know if, like, you have any more of them. I was like, oh, 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 you liked it. He's like, yeah, it was, like, a cool gift. Like, I'm going to use it now in my backpack. I was like, okay, okay. So and then the next day he came back, and I had a conversation with him. I was like, look. I need, I need to talk to you about something because I, I'm confused. I've never used weed in my life. I noticed that every time you come in, it just smells like weed. And I'm talking to you right now, like as a person, like I'm not a teacher, I'm not reporting you. I'm not getting you in trouble. I just want to know like, what, what is it that, that makes you want to use it and why so often? And do you feel like maybe it's why you miss class and, and you are a senior, like, don't you want to graduate and don't you want to, you know? And my heart is pounding the entire time that I'm having this conversation with him because I'm like, he can, he can like walk away. He can judge me. I, I don't know where it like, is this even going to work? Is he going to think that I'm, I'm like pandering? Is he going to think I'm sincere? And he, he sat down with me and he was like, you know something? Nobody's ever asked me that in my life. Like I've had a lot of teachers and nobody has ever asked me why I smoke weed. I smoke it cause I like it. Cause it makes me <laughs> feel good. I like it. And I was like, okay, but and he was like, yo, you never tried? I could get you some. I was like, no, I no, 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 no. Okay, <laughs> that, is, that is not where this conversation is going. 
I just want to know, like, I really care about you. Can you please start coming to class? Like, maybe try to smoke your weed, like, like earlier in the morning or, like, later at night, like, after my class, maybe? And he showed up the next day, and I couldn't, I didn't smell anything. And I was like, but is this because of my conversation? Like, what? Yeah. Um, and it was, I, like, he, he had, he did he never missed class. He came back to class every single day. And, like, he missed a couple of times, but he, he came back, and he passed my class with, like, an 80 and then I went to the graduation ceremony, right? Um, and at the graduation ceremony, I went over to him and I was like, Chase, it's, it's good to see you, like, meet your mom. He pulls over his mom. He pulls me over and he's like, Mom, this is the teacher I was telling you about. This is Ms. B. This is that, that teacher that I told you about, the tough love. She's the reason I'm graduating. And and she's like, I love her. And I'm just standing there hearing this. And I'm like, wow, I had no idea that you, like, that you felt that. He's like, my favorite teacher and she actually she was like she gives a shit about people and she talks to them and she, and for me it was the most like affirming moment in my teaching career I felt so good about myself in that moment and I was like I want to thank you Jace because you taught me something like I was really ready to write you off as this like pothead kid who never comes to class is gonna fail my class whatever I have like 72 other kids to care about and worry about you know but I, I really wanted to know about you and I wanted to know like what it was and I, I had a super awkward conversation with you that I never thought I would ever have with a student and look where we are today. Like he's working in an airport now, and he's going to college. Um, see, that's the and, thing with uh, with the older grades. You get to see the progress in kindergarten. And we see the progress like years later, years later, years and later. stuff like that. Yeah. But I think it's so much. I think it's just being nice to person. People don't understand being nice goes so far. Even if you yeah. don't know a person, just being nice to somebody goes so far. And I think when we first met at Talmud, it's just like seeing someone who's nice goes a whole lot better because. We're all like fish out of water. Some people like knew Israel. Like in my, like in the north, like clearly I realized like all the people who weren't Jewish are inside my little area. I was like, oh, freak, you're Chris, you're Chris. Oh, did they put us all up here together? I don't know. <laughs> I like, oh, I guess we're not. Because uh, my friend, I don't know, I've, it's kind of crazy that every person from our Tama class, I keep working with them. I don't know if you met Emily yeah. Carson. I don't know if you met her before. She's my principal. Molly. Mm. Molly. Wow. She was in Jerusalem. She works with me. I've met like five different Talmud people. I just saw Lara Tico. Like all these Talmud people, we just run into each other. And I just always, I've been that person. Like when you bounce around from different countries a lot, you make friends fast and you just always like check in. So when I'm always like checking in on people, it's like nothing weird. I'm just like, I just want to know how people are doing. Like, hey, now you have a podcast. You can be like, hey, this moment is in time now. It's like a time capsule of just like, oh, what was she like? January, June 24th, 2020. Like, imagine yeah. giving this to your kids, like, 10 years from now. Like, this is what your mom was like. Like, what? You were like this? <laughs> I think it's amazing that you do this. I had I had a very difficult experience with Tama. I think we, we like, touched on it before. Um, I was the one. There were 100 teachers. I was the one Orthodox one. There were 99 teachers there that were all a very big combination of like conservative reform. There weren't really modern Orthodox people, like maybe one, like Jillian, sweetheart who lived in Tzfat, the Tzfat location. She was becoming more religious, but no one there was like me. And I show up and I have my long skirt and my long sleeves. And I don't know if you remember this, but um, that first day of training in Tel Aviv, um, Alon brought in the former prime minister, the, the former uh, minister of education, I'm yes, sorry, Yuli Tamir. Yeah. Do you remember what happened? Oh, everybody was half asleep. You said something, right? I think you were the one that spoke up and said something, right? Yes. So I 
as that was our first day of training, our first day of lecture. Oh, he said something disrespectful about um. He said something about uh, Orthodox Jewish people, and you stood up and goes, "I'm Orthodox Jewish, and I don't think like that." Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how. Yeah, that's how. I, I was like, "Oh, yeah. she's Orthodox. I thought she was Brazilian." <laughs> that's interesting that you thought that. But that was it. Was just such a funny experience because. I entered this whole thing thinking, oh, it's going to be a bunch of like religious Jews and we're going to have our synagogues and our prayers and our kosher food. And then I'm sitting in this hotel room in Tel Aviv. I'm the only one in like a blazer with long sleeves and a dress to my knees. Everyone else is in summer shorts and short sleeves. And, and I'm realizing very, very quickly, this is not an Orthodox religious program, which was fine. But I realized that I was a sore thumb and I'm the one Orthodox person in the entire program. And then um, they brought up a speaker and the speaker was the former minister of education and she's a wonderful person and she did a lot for Israel, but she starts giving a speech about how, um, there are many problems with Israeli education and it's so sectionalized and polarized. There's like the private schools want to do their own thing and the religious schools want to do their own thing. And right. they don't really like having curriculums being given to them and they don't really want to teach, you know, what they're being told to teach and they don't really care about college and the Bagrut exams and then she made a statement and I'm listening to this and I felt so much pain and it was that you know the the Haredi people the orthodox community does not really care for education they don't really go for degrees they don't really pursue college they don't really you know take education seriously and I'm listening to this and I look behind me and you're right there were people that were sleeping but a lot of people were looking at her and absorbing this information and nodding their heads and I don't know what possessed me because this was literally the first day. Like, if you're gonna screw up on a program, let it be towards the end. Don't let it be like day one, and don't let it be in front of every single person, and in front of the former minister of education. But I just found myself standing up in front of a hundred people, and just being like, "I'm really sorry. I don't mean to be disrespectful. Um, my name is Sarah, and I'm Orthodox. I have two college degrees, um, and I I taught in yeshiva for for five six years." Orthodox people care about education. They just don't necessarily want to teach concepts like sexuality and evolution because it goes against their beliefs, but they care a lot about education and literacy and reading and writing and, you know, to, to portray an entire community as illiterate or as not caring about education. It's not right. And I welcome every single person here, come over to me, ask me questions. Like you can see by the sleeves, I am Orthodox. I do have a certain lifestyle and I welcome questions. The whole point of Talma is to learn and to educate yourself. And then I just sit down and I'm, I have this whole ocean of thoughts in my head. Like they're going to kick me out. They're going to send me home. I'm screwed. I'm dead. What have I just done? <laughs> and in a way I did set myself up because what happened was over the next few weeks, people kept coming to me and saying things like, Oh, so Orthodox people, you have sex through a sheet and a hole in the sheets, right? What? They were saying that stuff to you? Yes. People said that to me. What, what um, you, oh, I think so, it's, I, sometimes, I, like, I remember when you said that, I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. She just stood up in front of everybody else. She's Orthodox. I didn't even know that. I just thought she dressed, she just had long dresses. You know, you never, you know, I was like, that's <laughs> an interesting choice of clothes, you know, because it was hot out there. I was hot as F when it I got there. It was very hot. I, I, I was, was like, wow, she doesn't even laundry. sweat. What type of, I was like, what type of clothes is she wearing? She doesn't even sweat. And when you said that, I was like, wow, like that. So when we try to, like, every time we had a conversation, there's always, like, 15 people around. And I was like, man, she must be pretty popular. But <laughs> no, I know you guys were fighting up there. Like, your group, you guys had, like, mad fights out there. No, people were people were very curious, and they came up to me. And I got heated at times because 
people would say things to me like, so why do the Orthodox people not want to work? How come they want to like mooch off society? And I was like, the fact that they don't want to join the military doesn't mean they don't want to work. It just means they don't want to stop being religious. The military does not really let you, you know, keep Shabbat. And it's very hard to keep prayer schedules and, and, and be religious in the military. And there, by the way, there's a whole section of military people that are religious Jews that are all officers and, and they're serving. And I had people say to me things like, so are you forced to marry? Like, are you, are you being in an arranged marriage? Like, do you have any say in who your husband is? I had people say to me, Oh, you're going to the beach in a bathing suit. Are you even allowed to like, are you going to get in trouble? People would say some things that were really hurtful and really, misconceptions and I would try my yeah, best I'm sorry to that you experienced I'm sorry that you experienced that I think it's because some people weren't some people are just around the country is kind of ignorant to what's going on right. and I really think if you were in the north the north we had a hotel were you at a hotel no so the other thing is we were in a youth village we were in I it was kind of like a kibbutz it was like a farm where they had dormitory buildings um, and and people could live there but I think it was it was more than that it was just I'll give you an example. Like when, when the group would go to dinner, right? So your whole group, you'd go out to dinner with your mentor, right? Yeah. Did you have that? We were on a, we were like in a hotel. We all had hotels. So we would like all meet at the pool sometimes. But then oh, it was okay. kind of like split we by like it. fours. Like if sometimes your mentor would be like four, but it was more like nobody was, everyone's either Christian, uh, Christian, uh, what is that? Yeah. What's the type of Jewish person that you believe in Jesus? Uh, Jews for Jesus? No, no, no. It's called uh, Yo. Uh, yeah. Oh, a Jesuit? <laughs> Not a Jesuit. I wonder. I want to know what it is. Uh, I forgot. My cousin is one of those. It's not his. Uh, I got Google right here. Go for it. In Jesus. Okay, it is called. You are Messianic Jewish people. That's what it was. We had a lot of there Messianic Jewish people. Then alone, he would alone was really on our side because his wife was there at the time when they were dating. So we saw alone a lot. So it was right. alone, and everyone else were like very like it was very like hippie. It's very just like everyone. We only had like a few arguments, but we're in the north. We're kind of away from everybody, and it was quiet yeah. and it was cold up there. So like wow. everyone would have like. You know, I've realized that you guys grew up, like, I, I think when we all met up, when we all meet up for Shabbat, I was like, man, you guys seem kind of wild. Like, the Jerusalem group seemed wild. Everyone else seemed wild. Like, there's, like, mm -hmm. I was more like Jersey Shore. I was like, you guys are, like, on the Jersey Shore or something like that. So, I know it was interesting. We had a bookshelf with, like, six shelves, and the group would go out and buy wine every so often. And then every single night after a day of teaching and grouping, we had these torn up sofas that were in front of our dorm building, like mm -hmm. literally sofas with sagging, broken leather and holes and the stuffing coming out of it. <laughs> and everyone would just sit on these sofas in the evening breeze and they would drink wine, pass around the wine glass, play card games, play truth or dare, things like that. And then stack up the empty wine bottles on this bookshelf. So after our stint in Talma, we had like a very tall bookshelf with six shelves just covered in empty wine bottles that they had drunk over the over their uh, their Talmud term, and and it was interesting for me because again I was the only Orthodox person and I'm sitting there. Everybody's in like you know skimpy shorts and tanks and they're drinking and they're smoking weed, 
and they're sitting there playing Never Have I Ever, and they're Never Have I Ever games. Oh, yeah, you can't lose it. There was one girl in particular. I remember that one. It was, like, one girl from Australia in particular who liked to kind of, like, shock me. So I would be sitting there because I did feel isolated, but I did want to be social, so I would join them. And they would be like, oh, never have I ever had sex. And then everybody would turn to look at me, and I would be like, oh, great, are we making this a thing now? Because I had I had spoken about sexuality and intimacy to one person there, and I admitted that I was a virgin and I'm waiting for marriage, and it became a whole thing. And they were like, oh, Sarah, put your finger up, like in a semi-mocking, joking way. Um, and then they would make very wildly inappropriate sex jokes that I laugh about now because it's funny, but back then, like, I would sit there frozen and my face would turn red and I would feel so uncomfortable. I, I was just a sore thumb there. I really was. Like, I never smoked weed. I, I would just sit there while they would smoke, right? I would, you know, and there were moments where I felt like the group had a certain closeness and I was, like, the outsider. Um, wow. And something else that really bothered me is that I struggled with religion when I was there. Like, there was a Shabbat when, you know, we're not supposed to use technology on Shabbat. You're not supposed to use your phone when you're Sabbath observant. There was one weekend that I was feeling really, really lonely, really, really sad, really homesick. Um, I was, like, excluded from everybody's plans because people made Shabbat plans and they wouldn't invite me because, oh, you're the Sabbath observant person. We're not going to invite you because you can't be in the car with us. You can't drive with us. We're doing a trip to the Dead Sea. Like, why would it? And my response would be like, okay, but you guys are driving up there on Thursday. Let me come with you. And then on Shabbat, I'll do my own thing. I, I was very much, like, excluded from everybody's plans. And so I, I took out my phone, and I, I used it. I, like, watched a comedy or some such. And someone from the group had seen me using my phone and basically started, like, a whole thing telling everyone else, like, oh, she's fake orthodox. Today she's religious. Tomorrow she's not. And I overheard the gossip about me, and it was so painful, and it was so hurtful. And, it, like, are you telling me that you never struggled with religion? Like, you never... And then immediately after using my phone, I cried and I felt so guilty. And I was like, I'm sorry, God, for doing this. I shouldn't have. But I was feeling really lonely and really sad. And I needed something to, like, do with my, you know. Um, So that's just, there was that. And then there were times when the group would go out for a meal. And uh, so in the North, we were in hotels. And I know we were in this kibbutz where they served dinner in a kitchen. But on occasion, they closed the kitchen. So the group, we would rent cars, pile into the cars, drive to the city of Rishon, and then Everybody would go to a restaurant for dinner. So the first time we go into the restaurant and I see cheeseburger on the menu. Now I'm starving because I have not eaten since like the afternoon. And at this point, it's like seven in the evening. And I'm like, shit, this place is not kosher. Um, and so I turn to our mentor and I'm like, I, I can't eat here. He's like, oh, like what's the problem? You can just take the cheese off the burger. <laughs> and I'm like, how do I explain to him that that's not how kosher works? You yeah. can't just remove, because in, in kosher diets, you can't have meat and dairy. They're separate. Yeah, right. So, so it would seem logical, like, oh, just take the cheese off and eat it. But no, it's the entire kitchen has to be kosher. The meat has to be slaughtered with a kosher knife. And you can't have dairy and meat mixed up. Like, it has to be a kosher restaurant from their cutlery to their meat to their dishes, not just. Right. So I say to him, like, I'm so sorry, but I, I really can't eat here. Um, and I'm really hungry. <laughs> He was like, oh, well, can we, like, maybe, like, we can't order food from another place to a restaurant. You can't, like, and people were not hearing me, and it was really frustrating, and I felt like now I'm a burden because of my religious beliefs. Mm. I just Googled a kosher restaurant nearby. I found a burger place, and I said to the mentor in the group, like, okay, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to go get food. I'm starving. I'm going to go 
you know, eat at that place and I'll come back and join you guys. And they were like, okay, go like, have fun. Um, and I remember going to that kosher burger place where everyone was either in couples or with families <laughs> and I walk in alone and the wow. hostess is like one. And I'm like, yes. And I sit down at this very large table on my own and I'm just like looking at the menu and I start to tear up and I'm like, God damn it. So I order the food and I start eating it. And then I finished my meal on my own. And this family that was sitting there saw me looking very sad and they waved me over and they're like, Bush, meet that. Or like, come sit with us. Why are you alone? And I'm like, uh, I had to make something up because I was so embarrassed. So I was just like, uh, the, um, I'm, I'm, I'm traveling, I'm touring here, visiting on my own. So they were like, come join us. So I sat with them and then we finished eating. And at the end, I went back to the other restaurant where everyone was like finished up and heading back to the cars. And it was not the only time, but I want to like give a shout out to alone because that weekend that we came back from the shop, from the Shabbat, Mm -hmm. um, and the bus pulled up to like a a mall. There was a a giant mall. There was a McDonald's there. Oh yeah. I remember that. Do you remember that time? Yeah. Yes. So everybody's starving because it's like 10 o'clock at night and everybody's yes. like hitting town and excited and going yeah. out. And I'm like, oh God, McDonald's is not kosher. There's nothing kosher here. So I found a pharmacy and I bought like a pack of chips. And I remember being so hungry and feeling so sad again and thinking like, is this what religion does to you? It alienates you from people. And like, right. it just, you know, <laughs> and then my mentor saw me holding this pack of chips and I think at that point he understood like how frustrating and sad it was. So he reached out to Alone and God bless Alone. He drove all the way to a kosher sushi place and he picked up kosher sushi and he drove all the way to Ayanote and he delivered kosher food to me and he gave me the sushi. And I remember like taking a picture of it and smiling and eating it and feeling so good. I felt like here's a man who's not necessarily keeping all the laws, but is a Jew. And he can see that I'm in pain and I'm hungry and I'm frustrating. And he goes out of his way to go buy kosher food and make sure that I have food to eat. Like, I was so grateful to him in that moment. And I, I, I had a lot of gratitude for it. Shout out to Alone. But He's a father. Now. Shout out to Alone. Shout out He's to Alone. Really father of one. We were there when he was dating me, Tom. And I was like, I wonder why he's here all the time. Are we in trouble? Then I realized, like, oh, no, he's not stopping at this room. Okay, now we know who he's visiting. I think that, <laughs> I think that like, growing up, I've, you know, when you're growing around, I'm more of a, not a loner, but I, I know I'm a chameleon. I can blend in with everything else. So my motto, like, in the Bible, it says expect the unexpected. So I don't expect anything out of nobody. You know, like, I had situated, like, grow like, you know, that sucks that you experienced that. And I probably feel like, I think your group was like the loudest people, right? Those were the one always drinking all the time. I think that last yeah. final night. And I, I think I asked you, I was like, why? I was like, are you guys always this loud? And then you're like, trust me, this isn't even a half of it. Because we're at yeah. that hotel and everyone's leaving. I think that's when we had our first like real conversation. But I was like, man, it seems like you guys yeah. just drink all the time. Everybody's just party. But everyone from North, we're just mad chill. I think it's because we were all like older. Everyone was like 29, 28. And they yeah. had family. So my and group stuff had like that. my group had a lot of people in their younger twenty. Like it was like 25, 26, yeah. 24. We had a couple of older people, but it was definitely like a frat house environment. A lot of a lot of partying. A lot of but they were all very good people. I managed to connect with some really cool people. Like Olivia um, was she was very maternal and kind towards me. Um, I think because she was OG. Her and Nick. I don't know if you remember either Olivia or Nick. They were both that. people who had done the program times before. And they, they saw that I was struggling and they saw that it was really hard for me. 
And Olivia would make it a point to reach out to me. Whenever she was going to a grocery, she'd be like, I know you need kosher food. Do you want to come with us? Wow. Um, Nick would, would be like, <laughs> he was the guy that was like smoking every night. He'd be like, I know you don't smoke. And I know that you and I are very different. I'm like here with my alcohol and my weed. And you're like, literally like clutching your knees looking at everyone like where the hell am I but you know what I'm gonna take time to sit down and talk to you and get to know you like Nick sat down and asked me questions about Judaism and about the community um there were some really really good people there that and like Willie Willie was um also a really sweet guy oh I know Willie yeah oh Willie yeah you remember Willie yeah yeah He's he's in the Bay Area yeah and he he also he took time to sit down and talk to me like, someone had made a really not nice comment to me, and I was really hurt by it. So I, of course, being defensive, responded back in a not nice way. It was really immature. I look back on that, and I regret it. But um, I, the next day, I felt so badly about it. I went over to her to apologize, and I was like, hey, um, let's call her X. Hey, X, I, I, I lashed out at you after you said something not nice about Orthodox Jews, and I'm really sorry. Like, it was wrong, and I shouldn't have done that. And I hope you can apologize. Like, I hope you can accept my apology, and we can forgive and be friends. And she, she just takes one look at me, and she's like, friends? I don't want to be friends with you. No, I don't forgive you. And then she, like, turns around and walks off. And I remember, like, sitting there on the sofa shocked and shaking, and I was crying a little bit. And so Willie comes over, and I told him what happened. And he was like, oh, look, X is not, like, healthy, and X is going through a really hard time in her life right now. You have to forgive X. Like, you have to be the bigger person here. Like, I'm sure that X didn't mean it, and X is just going through a lot of pain. And as soon as you understand that, like, you know – yeah it's easier to forgive her and and just like don't take it personally and he was such a good guy like he sat with me and he comforted me he's a really good guy there were many really wonderful wonderful people on Tama um and I'm so happy that I got to meet you on Tama and I'm so happy that it connected us and I want to talk to you after this I feel like I don't know your whole story yet I want to know you I want to know your story I tell people to come to the shows I'm I just I find people that's the thing I'll find like I forgot. I just find people. I don't know if you met Jacqueline Weinrib. She went to Talma, and I was like, "Hey, let's sit down." Yeah. And we just like, yeah, we did a podcast too. She talked about her experience at Talma. I think oh, we were all more like we were like going to rivers and creeks and like swimming in water. And I'm not good with water that I don't know the size of the creek. You know what I mean? I was like, is this five feet or eight feet? Because I can, you know. But we will. These are our last questions. This is a great. This is a great one. These are called the hilltop questions. Ready? Mm-hmm. These are hilltops. Now, you can answer it any way you want to. It doesn't have to be short form. It doesn't have to be long form. However it goes is how it goes. Okay, are you ready? Yes. All right, question number one. Do you believe in God? I do. Who's your favorite person in the Bible or the Torah? Your favorite person inside there. God, there's too many. <laughs> you got to pick one. Your favorite person. Oh, oh man. Okay. Um, I love a woman that many people have not heard of. Her name is Rahab. I believe the English terminology would be Rahab or Rahab. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. She was a prostitute who was very well sought out in the, um, in the community of, uh, Jericho, I believe it was. And mother of Boaz. She ended up marrying, uh, the second in command, uh, who eventually became the first in command. Um, let me just get her. Hang on. Here we go. Okay, so it's R A H A B, Rahab. Mm-hmm. Um, She's in the book of Joshua. Yes, she is. She married Yoshua. I'm trying to like think how to Englishize. Um, 
she lived in Jericho, Yericho, which is the Hebrew terminology. She was the most sought out prostitute in the land. She was a beautiful woman, highly intelligent, and she lived like in the fortress, in the towers. Now, um, the Jews were trying to get through, and so um, two men that were sent to do like reconnaissance and check out the area, they were being pursued by soldiers. They were going to be killed, and Rachav took them and she hid them, like in her in her room, her tower. Yeah, Salman. Yes, Um, and one of those men was um, Yehoshua, Yehoshua, who was basically Joshua, who was the highest, like, in command. He was Moses' second, what was the term you used, the hip-hop term? (laughs) Second in command. Second in command, right? Yehoshua, he was like a, a Torah scholar, he was a brilliant scholar, he was a military general, he was the second in command to the, the... Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, the highest priest, um, and he married her. He fell in love with her, and he married her. And she was such a holy woman that she managed to go from a profession that's arguably really looked down upon to becoming one of the holiest women, uh, a Torah scholar in her own right. Joshua married her? Yeah, she married Yoshua. Um, I don't know why I thought she married Salmon. No. Well, I guess because maybe it's different with the New Testament and the Torah. But um, the Torah oh, version is that Rachel basically, wow. she hid these men in her tower in Yericho, and she had conversations with Yoshua, and she recognized his greatness, and yeah, Joshua, yeah, followed him back to the camp and said, "I want, I want to learn more. I want to learn. I want to know." She was a woman who sought knowledge, a woman who didn't come from this environment and this background, but she recognized truth and holiness, and she said, "I'm giving up my life that I know." and wow. the wealth that I have to come out here and learn from you. And she eventually, she became his wife. He loved her. She loved him. They married. And she's one of, like, can you imagine going from that to that? I think that's such a tremendously cool How does that relate? That does. What, how does that affect you? Is that like saying that no matter what we go through, there's always a chance for redemption? Yeah. And not just rege- redemption, but greatness. There's always a chance for greatness. Ooh, like, I like that. She she literally went from from being a prostitute, um, a prostitute a all the way wife. to being the wife of the man who was the second in command when Moshe Rabbeinu died. Yeshua became the first in command. He was the leader of the Jewish nation. Took him to the he promised led them land. Into Milk and honey. He, he led them in, exactly. He led them into Israel, the promised land, and she was his wife. She was by his side. She was the one that raised. His children, she was the one that learned Torah from him and with him and taught it to the women in the nation. She became such a holy, great woman. And I think it's a pity that she's not really taught about often in the yeshivas because I guess they don't, like, the schools are very careful when it comes to things like sex or prostitution. They're not necessarily going to teach about that. Um, I didn't learn about her when I was in yeshiva. I learned about her on my own when I was pursuing knowledge about the Torah. And I think she's such an incredible woman. What does her name mean? And then mean? you obviously have, sorry? What does her name mean? Rachav. Um, well, Rachav is, is um, Hebrew. That it translates to like large, um, but it also comes from Aramaic and Arabic. It, large, broad, meaning like, I, I like to interpret it as she was very large-hearted and very open-minded. Mm. Um Meaning she was big-hearted and open-minded. That's how I take that word of, like, large and translate it in that way. Because it really takes someone who's very open-minded 
to think I could get killed for hiding these men who are spies. I could lose all of my wealth. I could lose my, like, and she was looked upon as, as a great woman in, in Jericho. Like people frequented her place often. She was a, a popular woman, you know, right. it, it, it takes a big heart and a very open mind to talk to people that are strangers that you don't know and to save their life and to pursue knowledge. And I, I really admire that in her. And then there's obviously my namesake, um, Sarah, who's the matriarch of the Jewish people. You can only pick one. I know, ah, but there's so many. No, you can only pick one. You can only pick one. Rechab. Who's your Who's Rechab. your favorite religious character? Oh. My favorite one? Maybe Job. Yeah? Yoav? The one who it's, suffered a lot? Yes. Is that in the Torah, Job? Yeah, it is. He he was um, a man a who dog? lost his wife, his children, his home, his health, his his lands. Do you have but a he dog? Remained faithful Is that a dog? God. What? Do you have a dog? No, that's my my younger brother actually. Oh. What? I thought oh, you were born into a dog. I was like, what? Did dogs speak English? No, no. <laughs> my younger brother just came downstairs and he was like peeking into the room, like. <laughs> So I was just pointing at him saying, just give me a second, I'm on a... Job, yeah. Job lost everything. And he lost his wife, yeah. he lost everything, and he got it all back at the end. But he didn't curse but he, God. But he maintained his faith in God. He didn't give up. That's for me. I also think that's incredible. When I'm in the city. Oh, is it that one? Sometimes my favorite character is... Is David. King David? King David. He's also a really cool one. Him and Solomon, the two of them. The reason why I like David is because David was more inspiration. I don't know if you know the story of David and Goliath, right? How David like slayed yeah. Goliath. With but, slingshot. Like, right, but in the Torah, it talks about in general that he brought five stones. Like you notice that like, he brought five. He brought all these stones with him. And the question was, when I was talking to this rabbi, he was like, I was like, why did he bring five stones if he was going to kill him, if he knew he would kill the giant with one? And it's what's believed in the Torah and everything else is like after he he was prepared after he killed the giant to kill more. But after yeah. he killed Goliath, nobody else, everyone got inspired to start slaying giants. So sometimes I feel like I'm like David, like whatever giant that I slay in my life, I want people to be inspired to slay other giants. You know, maybe your giant yeah. is in education, maybe your giant's in comedy, maybe your giant is in a documentary, and you're educating more people about you know how you grew up. So David, David's mine. Forget Job, David. 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 <laughs> David. Okay, King favorite David. verse in the Torah. What's your favorite verse in the Torah? Just Oof. one verse. Don't think of a lot. Favorite verse. Just one. Mm. I'm guessing another one will come out of the New Testament. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> Probably not. I'm, let me look up the exact phrasing of it. Hang on. There we go. Uh, okay. I'm going to give you the Hebrew. Okay. Um... All right, I'm going to translate. First, I'll say the Hebrew, and then I'll say the English. Okay. 
It's in Ethics of Our Fathers, Pirkei Avot, mm. which is part of the Torah, if you would. Um, it's Ve'ahavta l'reacha kamocha, ze'klal gadol b'torah. That's the Hebrew verse. In the English, you should love your fellow as yourself. This is a basic principle of the Torah. Okay, so 60-second background. Um, there are 613 commandments in Judaism yes. that Jews follow. Now, some of these commandments are thou shall not, like don't, you know, like do not mix meat with dairy, do not lie, do not covet another man's wife, do not kill, etc. And some of these are do, like you should respect your parents, you should keep the Sabbath as its holy day, um, you should love your man as your fellow man. So these 613 mitzvot are divided into another two categories. Um, those that are between man and God, like prayer, um, wearing the tzitzit, wearing the skull cap. And the other ca- the other category is between man and man. Um, so 613 mitzvot that Jews are obligated to follow. People that are Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox, Hasidish usually follow many, many of them. People that are more conservative, reform, etc., don't really follow all of them necessarily, but they keep some. Um, and these are split into between man and God, like prayer and Shabbat and between man and man. The one that I love the most between man and man is love your fellow man like yourself. Um, I feel like it really epitomizes Judaism, if you would. It explains what Judaism is all about. Because what are all these laws? Why do we need to be told don't steal, don't covet, don't lie, don't etc. and so forth? Like It all comes down to bettering yourself and bettering the people around you and, and leaving the world a better place. But at its core, the only way to really do that is by loving your man the way you love yourself. And a question I asked myself is, why is the commandment not just love your man, right? Why does it have okay. to be love yourself? Like, why Why you? The Torah is very deliberate when it comes to wording and breathing. And I think it's because people struggle to love themselves, right? Mm. So I think God is giving us multiple commandments here god is saying i put you in this world i put a piece of me in you first and foremost learn to love yourself don't judge yourself harshly when you fail don't hate yourself for all your flaws learn to love yourself once you've learned to love yourself learn to treat everybody else with that same love that you gave yourself i feel like it's a twofold commandment love yourself and love others and through that you'll ultimately be fulfilling all of these 613 commandments. You'll be leaving the world a better place, making yourself a better person, and making others better people. And that's why it's my favorite verse. Okay, ready? When's the last time you had a nightmare? Pretty recently. A couple of days ago, I think... um, it's about my special needs brother mm. again it happens a lot of times when my my um when my parents will go upstate or they'll go somewhere and they'll ask me to stay at home and mm. be in charge of the younger kids i get these irrational fears <laughs> like right. did i lock all the doors did i close all the lights what if god forbid something happens and then sometimes at night i'll just have these ridiculous nightmares where it's like, oh, okay, someone is, God forbid, sick or dying, and 
I have to like get to them to help them in time. I'm not going to delve into the subconscious and like the Freudian and the yada yada. It's probably yeah. very much connected in some way. But yeah, it was like a weird nightmare about my brother being sick and like me having to help him. This ties into our next question. What's your biggest fear? Dying without having accomplished that which I was capable of accomplishing. Okay, next question. When's the last time you had a panic attack? COVID-related. I had... Okay, it's it's personal. Um, Never, if it's personal, we don't. Well, we've already dug into your whole life, so if you want well, to keep Well, we have, going. I suppose. Okay. Um, I, ha- I, I usually am very calm, cool, and collected. I don't often have panic attacks. I react really well under stress. But in this particular instance, I had, um, I had one sibling who was diagnosed with mental illness, one sibling who was having severe anxiety, one sibling who was, um, who had fallen in with a bad crowd and mm. was possibly using a substance that he should not have. Right. Leave it at that to respect his privacy. Um, and at the same time, my parents were asking me to find like a job for this one, a therapist for this one, a solution for this one, a program for this one. And at the same time in school, um, a student who had not done any work had complained that I was not helping her do the work when she had disappeared for like five weeks and was not responding to any of my emails. And all of this happened in the same day, like in the same, the same 24 hours. And then immediately after that email, I got another email from um, an assistant principal saying like, I'm having a meeting with you tomorrow morning by Zoom to discuss this student's complaint. So that triggered like even more of a, oh shit, like what have I gotten into? And then on top of that, (laughs) like literally 10 minutes later, um, a friend of mine had called me uh, to inform me that one of my students had passed away. She had overdosed. So this had all happened within like a 24 hours. It was like, okay, you need to find this one help he needs to go to rehab. You need to find this one a program because too many episodes stuck at home for COVID for too long. It's, it, it's impossible to live with. And we need to also help this one with her anxiety and this student lodged a complaint against you, which was not true. And now the assistant principal is requiring a meeting and, oh yeah, one of your students from Yeshiva overdosed and all in the same 24 hours. So I literally just shut my computer, shut off my phone, and I just lay flat. Wow. <laughs> in the backyard and I put on some music and I was like, I'm not, I'm not thinking, I'm not talking, I'm just listening to music now for 10 minutes and nobody's going to talk to me or I will just like lose it. But it was pretty bad. It was a bad day. Yeah. Okay. Three more questions. Do you believe in soulmates? To a certain extent. Judaism believes that a person can have up to seven soulmates. What do you believe? What? What do you believe? Do you believe so I, in I sort of agree. I believe that you can be soulmates with multiple people. I don't think there's one specific person 
I, I was raised on this belief that 40 days before a person is born, God takes their soul and tears it in half. Oh, wow. So half of the soul, this, this is a Jewish belief, is that 40 days before a person is born, right, the soul is, is created, God tears in half. Um, half of it is for the male, half of it is for the female. And then 40 days before um, the, the fetus, the, the baby is physically born, God announces X is destined to marry Y. So that's the, the base, one of the base religious beliefs is that you already, before you even pop out of the womb, you have your soulmate and that they're waiting for you. However, there's a Kabbalistic view saying that there's no one soulmate. It's that a person has the potential to be different people with different spiritual levels and different, like just different levels at different times in their life. And they end up with the soul that they allow themselves to be. So if, for example, um, I was at a certain stage in my life right now where I practice a certain level of observance and I met someone at that level of observance, we can become soulmates. Whereas if I were to wait a couple of years and grow a lot stronger in my religion and let's say become Hasidic or ultra-Orthodox, right, I could meet someone who is potentially then my soulmate on that level. In other words, the Kabbalistic belief is that you you meet whoever you are at that time, whoever you allow yourself to be, and then they become your soulmate oh. based on the work that you've done for yourself. Okay. Okay, here we go. So what, do you, I, oh, what do you think happens yeah, when you I die? I believe in it to a certain extent. Okay. Huh? Answer this question. What do you think happens when you die? When you die, I think that your body is buried, your soul is elevated... And I hope that your memory lives on. I don't think that there's... Um, well, just, again, belief in the afterworld. Um, there's the belief in resurrection where everybody comes back and the, the Holy Temple is built and the Messiah arrives. Mm -hmm. um, I'm still in the process of reading about that and learning about that. I'm a little bit shaky on my faith in that specific area where I believe that my soul will be reincarnated and I'll come back to life when the Messiah arrives and the Holy Temple is built, it's confusing for me. And Jews will not admit this out loud. <laughs> Orthodox Jews do grapple with this belief because it's like, if I'm coming back, how am I coming back? In this body, as this person? Will my parents come back as my parents? In their bodies? Um, and where will we be living? And how are how is this working? And it, it's confusing. There's a lot of information and beliefs that we were raised with. And when you're in school, it's like, oh, I believe in this. And then right. when you're out of school and you start reading books, you're like, I don't, this I believe in, this I don't, I'm not really sure. I, The answer is to be determined, still under construction. <laughs> All right, this last one is a series of questions, right? It's called, who are you, right? I'm going to ask, who are you? And you respond back, who are you? So I'll give you an example. Every time I point, you just say, who are you? And I'll answer the question. Ready? You got to say, who are you? Who are you? I'm Jarrett Waters. Then you ask it again. Who are you? Stand-up comic. And I'm going to keep asking these questions until you stop, right? So the oh, goal is to go beyond yourself and to go beyond and just what your name is. is just who are you. I don't want you to think about it. You just got to go. It's just whatever's off the top of your head. Ready? Who are you? Okay. Uh, Sarah B. Who are you? Daughter. Who are you? Playwright. Who are you? Teacher. Who are you? Poet. Who are you? Dreamer. Who are you? Giver of love. Who are you? 
Mother to many. Who are you? Student. Who are you? Seeker of knowledge. Who are you? Failure. Who are you? Success. Who are you? Doubt. When it's all said and done, and they write your book, right? And they write your book, and they give it to somebody else. What do you want people to say about Miss Sarah B. when they read your story? She tried. Sometimes she failed. Sometimes she succeeded. She touched a lot of hearts. She changed a lot of minds. And she was loved. And she gave a lot of love. Ladies and I hope they say that about me. <laughs> This is your book. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Miss Sarah B. This is the podcast, One Man, One Tree in the Hill. Thank you so much. Uh, where can they find your work, your artwork? Do you have any of your artwork where people can find? Or I do write a lot of poetry. Do you have it online? Is there a website? Or... I don't really publish it because some of it is like a little controversial and people in my community don't necessarily know that I write it. But people can totally reach out on Facebook and I'd, I'd gladly send pieces that I wrote. It's, should I give you my name on? I'll put it inside the, the description. I'll put it inside the description. Yeah, people feel, honestly, the main message for your listeners is thank you for listening. This has been really enlightening in a way. I'm so appreciative that you gave me this chance. And if you have any questions or conceptions about Orthodox Jews, we're so different. There's no, like, one of us. It's so many people, different stripes, colors, thoughts, views, philosophies, and we're very real. We have very real struggles, very real doubts. And reach out. Just just get to know us. Reach out. We want to talk to you. And some don't, and that's okay. But there are many that do. So reach out. I'd love to get to know you. I'd love to answer any questions that you have. Reach out and touch. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Jared Waters. This is my dear friend, Sarah B. You're listening to the podcast, One Man, One Tree, and a Hill. Hey, you're live on the podcast, One Man, One Tree, and a Hill. Say what up to the people. Now, this is when I see black excellence. It's Keenan Thompson. And I see this giant butt. I'm like, oh, who is that? Turns out it's Questlove. So Dave Chappelle, Chris Rock, Eddie Murphy. And they're all sitting at the table. And I walk up to Eddie Murphy. And I was like, hey, Mr. Murphy, I just want to say you're the goat, man. You're the coldest that ever walked the face of the earth. You got to break that thing over. She wants it private, but y'all not even together right now. So we haven't spoken about anything but the cat for at two least months. two months. Said, uh uh, and I'm be the next Jamar Neighbors. And she was up like, I know that's right. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to the podcast. My name is Jerry Waters, and I'll catch you next time. Like, subscribe, rate the podcast. Have a wonderful night, wonderful day, whatever you're listening to. I'll see you soon.